Hello and welcome to Girls Gone Canon presents A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 118, Catalan Introduction and A Game of Thrones 1. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. Yes, we are. We're here. We did it. I Again, I'm still sad about Miss about Davos, but it's interesting to once again be here at the start of a new POV and we're going to be with Catelyn for quite a while. Yeah, this is going to go until Octoberish, give or take depending on life, depending on chapters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do miss Davos already a little. Like I have a, a little part of my heart now that I'm like, "Oh, there it goes down the river." Uh, but it's floated, another piece has floated up here to Catalan, so I'm excited. Let's see where it takes us. Yes. We've got a lot of stuff, uh, not just this popping off exciting, like our Patreon episode this month. Yes, and just as, you know, we are back to the beginning of A Game of Thrones, we are visiting some other beginnings, right, with this Patreon episode uh, by revisiting Dunkin' Egg. But also, we have uh, something exciting going on too with this episode yeah you know way back when back when well back when maybe n- not back to get when. a little brand to a storm of swords on you all here not to get all how i met your mother on you but uh way back when back when we were youngsters right eliana and i had just met and fallen deep in friendship deep deep in friendship and i had a podcast called drunk a song of ice and fire history it's still there-ish. You can find this on the internet. Maybe we'll link it for you. But Eliana and I got despairingly drunk and talked about the hedge night together for several hours. I think it came to what, like three and a half, four hours in the end. I think it was more than that and you cut it down to that. And we talked for like a whole work day. <laughs> we talked for like eight hours. We we bonded throughout this whole experience and our love of the hedge night, of the Dunkin' Egg novellas. And I went on with this journey with this podcast, and I recorded the next episode, The Sworn Sword, with another friend of the podcast, Sir Joe Buckley, uh, Valerie Redis, the Isle of Faces podcast, you might know his writings from Tower of the Hand, you name it, he's done it all, writes a lot for History of Westeros, he's a blast, but I went on to record with him, and we did like a five-hour recording on The Sworn Sword, we were properly sloshed by the end. We were very the slosh drunk. sword. Yep, the sloshed sword. And I don't know if it was fate or what, but something happened to my file. It got corrupted. I have no. his side of the file. I don't have mine. No. Uh, yeah. That's real. You know how that goes. That's real. That's Oh my god, I, I do know how that goes. So maybe it was the pain of that, or maybe it was because Eliana and I fell so... Don't so blame, despairingly, don't, don't devastatingly in friendship. <laughs> I just couldn't be me. with anyone else ever oh again. So that's it. Every month on patreon.com slash girls gone canon patrons in the stranger tier and above get access to a special episode. Every other month, the episode is on his dark materials. Last month, we released an episode on the novella by Philip Pullman called Serpentine. This month will be on the Sworn Sword featuring Sir Joe Buckley of the Isle of Faces and Valar Reredas. So very excited to announce that. Please check it out at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. You can sign up. And if you sign up for the Thunder tier and above, you also get access to Discord, which is a blast. We have our own private little Discord server. We do. And we got a... (laughs) 
I particularly tickled at this. We got a new member today, uh, Megan, who was most convinced, I think, by the Final Fantasy X references. So that brings me joy. Well, I'm very excited about our our Final Fantasy, which is this episode. I I can't believe it was just the Final Fantasy X. What about the eight? Uh, that that's what uh, surprises me. But I I actually never played eight. I think that ten might have been actually no seven eight were really popular. But I feel like ten was egregiously popular during a certain time. You know? Yeah, absolutely. The the aughts especially were fond of ten, and not just that, but like I think it's because seven eight nine, right? Oh wow! <laughs> Indeed, that is that is a uh, how Ooh. consumption works. <laughs> All right, stop dicking around, God. Uh, well, I'm excited about the Sworn Sword because I love Duncan Egg. Yes, I. Uh, I guess we're gonna have to do the Mystery Night eventually after this one, right? That's got to be on the table. Yeah, but when we will do the Mystery Night is also a mystery. Hmm. 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 <laughs> Well, we got an email of note, an email I would like to highlight this week, from our friend Alex. They wrote us a wonderful note. There's so much. We did trim some of it down because we do hope that Alex will come on and hang out with us on the podcast during Catalan this season. And I think this email they sent does sum up a lot of the way that I, too, see Catalan. Not all of the way, just a lot of it. Yeah, and I think that Alex has a lot of other perspective that I'm really excited for them to bring onto the cast in terms of analyzing Cat Lynn. So fingers crossed, everyone. But here's just here's just a snippet. There's a lot of things that we unfortunately had to trim because again, you gotta you gotta leave a little for uh, you gotta leave a little mystery, you know, uh, but, <laughs> a little ink. Mm-hmm. To start off, Alex talks a little bit of first of all how Cat is. One of their favorite POVs, but also dives into it more, saying that if you look at Aswath with the framework of a romantic series, capital R romantic, by the way, a fantasy series, a mystery, horror, thriller, epic, drama, series, all these genres, and add the novelty and insight of having female characters be so central and independent, I think you'd see why I'd suggest Cat is the best. Cat's emotions are what tie these themes together, even as they sometimes clash. Cat is a fantasy character. She sees some magical stuff, she visits castles and shit. Cat is involved in a few overlapping and convoluted whodunits, and Cat is simultaneously the rebel PI, femme fatale, by the book gumshoe, and victim. And then in parentheses, uh is some slander, but I'm going to read it aloud anyway. Uh, mostly stemming from her relationship with another GGC favorite, Littlefinger. Get a job. Get a job. I think favorite to hate on, for sure. And yeah. Alex continues, Cat is also a character who encounters and puts a fresh coat of paint on a literary epic. Cat is defined by the time just beyond living memory and the era gone by for Westeros, her adherence and understanding of the Westerosi norms, even as the increasing magic and political-slash-societal rot going nuclear creates a crisis and double consciousness, the touches or breaks every single character in the series, and Cat still goes forward. This is Odysseus, just after a war ends, and unable to go home due to outside meddling. Cat grew up under the shadow of the War of the Nine Penny Kings and the Blackfire Rebellions, 
She matured during Robert's rebellion and is a central supporting figure in the War of the Five Kings, and throughout all of this comes the drama. When I see people criticize Kat for trusting Liza or Peter or even the Westerosi norms, I'm like, well, what reasonable person would expect the worst in people, especially considering the people they grew up with? Over the three books of Catelyn Stark, as we in the world knew her, she has a prolonged dark night of the soul. She has to learn very quickly just how much the people she held close to her heart were disappointments at best, and evil treasonous pieces of shit at worst. That's an exaggerated series of painful truth and discoveries. Family betrayals, family drama, family gossip coming to life, and oh, by the way, at these same moments you're all sweat war and could expect an army to start sieging you at any moment. Catelyn experiences these romantic themes most strongly and I think one of the biggest challenges for a person. How do you contextualize your own happiness when you see the misery in your wake? And like many epic characters before her, she just wants to fucking go home. Uh, we do regret cutting the Beyonce and Cher lyrics that Alex quoted here, but like we said, Alex will hopefully come on and tell you all about it and describe them in full. So... In conclusion, as they say, she. She? Think she. she. Uh, yes. Compelling piece. And, and again, like this is a lot of the same framework. Catalin totally embraces society, right? Like society is what she was raised on. Her father raised her and said, Catalin, if you do these things, you marry well for the family. You make sure that, you know, our defenses are well stocked. All of these different household things are done. Nothing can hurt you. This is your piece of land. These are your people. And unfortunately, she learned that your very people can hurt you. And it, as Alex points out, it's a lesson that many of the characters get throughout the series. Alex also included quite a few other pieces that we cut, which again, regrettably so, not just the Beyonce and Cher lyrics, but quite a bit of poetry from William Blake and yes. a couple of other, oh, yeah. other poets. Too. <laughs> and a couple of other, uh, other poets and, and ties it back to a lot of these Edenic ideas of a time of innocence and childhood and coming out of that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of what's so significant structurally about the role that Kat plays in this book, right? Again, this is one of the earliest Game of Thrones chapters that we... This is the earliest Game of Thrones chapter, A Song of Ice and Fire mm -hmm. chapter, you and I have ever covered. It's got a lot of world building and context setting because of that. And that's part of why it makes sense that a lot of that that coming out of innocence... Cat is how we structure Westeros, right? How a lot mm -hmm. of the foundations of how this society is set up and the exposition comes through in the mm -hmm. setting and then it all breaks apart also through Kat's POV and I think that that's important to again how the story is laid out yeah we'll get into it in the chapter a bit more but as the third chapter in the story thus far George has already been building the norm and this is kind of the first chapter of the first three that goes outside of this norm he's laid out right if you're following him chronologically one is prologue two is Bran and then three is cat. And the first two chapters kind of show you things are going on. And the third chapter, cat just gives this total flip of a POV and kind of turns everything that you've been told so far or seen so far with your two eyes on its head. So we'll talk about that soon. But first, we are going to jump in with our lightning round for the introduction to Catalan. What that lightning round is going to be is a little bit of everything, right? Pre A Song of Ice and Fire, 
the rebellion, post-rebellion, and then we'll get into our overview and some of the themes that cross over with Davos before we go into a real lightning round with the book A Game of Thrones. So this will just cover a little bit of what we're missing as we go into Catelyn's story. Yes, so we're going to start off with pre-Aswaf, pre-rebellion, and Cat's childhood. Cat is born in 264 AC, possibly 265 gravy, uh, to Manisa Tully, Nay Went, and Hoster Tully, anointed in River Run Sept with the Seven Oils. At some time, you know, it's interesting how also this is gravy. Cat lost her mother sometime between the ages of 3 and 14, which is actually an enormous range, but... There, there's uh, implications that maybe it was around the age of seven, so sort of like in between there. Kat is the eldest daughter of Hoster's children, and also actually lost her two older brothers who preceded her in their infancy. So until the birth of Edmure, Kat was Hoster's heir. And even after her brother's eventual birth and, and becoming the heir, perhaps she was still Hoster's favorite. She was raised at River Run with her surviving siblings, Liza and Edmure, and their father's ward, Peter Baelish. Her mother died in childbirth with the youngest son, who did not survive either. She doesn't have many memories of her mother beyond her warm smile and soft hands, but her memories with her father are closer. She'd accompany him on his travels, read to him in his solar, and always watched for him at the battlements as he marched off to war. I, I think her being raised as his heir definitely for mm-hmm. at least a couple of years there seems important right like it may have been seven-ish like you said but it could have been a year or two after that even who knows it could have been seven more years after seven based exactly. on based George on the, the doesn't timeline. care <laughs> it says yeah it says that uh Manisa went died sometime between what is it 268 uh, this is this mm-hmm. is what the wiki says 268 AC and 278 AC and that's a big range to say the least yep. To say the least. Amidst kissing games in her youth with her sister and Peter Baelish, or pretending to be Jenny of Old Stones on the trip to Seaguard, Catelyn ends up betrothed at age 12 to Brandon Stark, the Wild Wolf. Unfortunately, Catelyn picked up a little problem along the way. Peter Baelish was in love with her, and years later, when her wedding's announced, he duels Brandon for her hand, which she begs him. She's like, please... Go easy on him, Brandon. And he loses. Scorned, heartbroken, hellbent on revenge rises the true villain of the story, Peter Baelish. We live in a society. Uh, Peter tries to send her letters. Cat burns them all, which she should. She should. Brandon leaves River Run, but when he does, he learns about the absence of his sister. Your sister. Your sister. <laughs> well, we'll talk about it. Uh- well, I guess Catelyn's the your sister. Anyway, before we get to all that, we've got a rebellion on our hands. Brandon is furious to hear that his sister has been kidnapped by Rhaegar Targaryen? Uh, if that even is his real name. I think it is. Yeah, maybe. Maybe not. Uh, Brandon goes to King's Landing and yells a lot for Rhaegar to come out and die. And the Mad King is like, lock that bitch up. And then Ashara Dane allegedly, according to some, maybe fucks him in the dungeons? No, they're wrong. None of those people are right. It's not possible. The timeline doesn't add up. What is this? Why is this in here? Why is this in our hotline? Rickard Stark shows up to champion Brandon. Ares chooses fire slash violence. And then uh, 
some charred wolf for dinner, but not actually. The cannibalism hasn't started yet at this point in the story. And so, you know, Catelyn gets passed off to marry Brandon's younger, quieter, less deadly brother, <laughs> Nedward. And she and her sister become sister wives in a great double war wedding after the Battle of the Bells. To this day, Ned still feels the burden of Brandon having been the one that Cat was promised to. Cat and Ned have time to conceive a child on their wedding night. One and done. Not Amazing, just honestly. Kidding. There's more. There's more after that, but they're not done. They're not done by far. Mm-mm, but mm-mm. off Ned goes into the wild war. She, however, remains at River Run for a year. She has Rob, and then she heads north post-war, where she discovers that Ned brought home an oopsie-daisy-ish asterisk, and he already moved this kid in. But whose oopsie-daisy is it, you ask? This, of course, caused absolutely no tension and no trust issues whatsoever, and leads us into post-rebellion. Cat and Ned have four more kids, even though the wedge between them, whether it's just over Brandon's death or John, slowly drives ever deeper. And so maybe some of you are wondering, after all of this, why put Catelyn after Davos? Though I'm sure many of you are not in fact wondering that because a lot of you guessed it. <laughs> well, let's start out. Chloe talked about this a little bit before. But there's some of those connections when it comes to water. Let the kings of winter have their cold crypt under the earth, Catelyn thought. The Tullys drew their strength from the river, and it was to the river they returned when their lives had run their course. A Storm of Swords, Catelyn Four. Yes, so there is uh, some of that water bringing them together. They also have the comparison of motherhood versus fatherhood. Right, their children are big parts of their POV. Maybe if they're not always present, necessarily, they both lose their children in war. And then, of course, both of them have these ideas of what is family, duty, honor, of course, the house Tully words, but also loyalty and a bit of disloyalty. Both Catelyn and Davos ruminate often on the social hierarchy and at times feel very bound to it. Yet, at the same time, they end up betraying their kings for their family or yes. for family in general. Yes. The seven gods are also very prominent in their chapters, right? We see a lot of sects, a lot of the seven, a lot of the gods in prayer, and learn a lot about the gods through them. And then, of course, the roles that they both play as ambassadors and diplomats, but also unlikely ones, right? Davos, of course, is not a hand that anyone expects. And Catelyn, as well, as a woman in Westeros, is not always the likeliest or first choice. Yet they both do it anyway, and we talked about this a little towards the end of Davos's chapters. Both of them play integral roles in A Clash of Kings, where Catelyn, again, in my opinion, is much of the thread that holds the whole book together, and Davos is an introduction of another big arc that leads to one of the climaxes of the book and introduces that, so there's a lot there. Yeah, and I think even just the chapters, how they revolve around each other, uh, their plots, you know, they're never directly involved with each other to where they speak to each other in conversation or have anything, but their plots actually directly revolve around each other right through the first couple books. They just might not know it. Speaking about that faith, there's an element of the idea of death and rebirth, literally in Kat's story, more metaphorically in Davos's, that comes for both of them. And, you know, again, with that idea of water and baptism, both of them dying, well, both of their bodies kind of thrown into the water and then emerging from them. So 
What does that mean? Mm. What does it mean? Rebirth. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to rebirth this lightning round, right? Because we're going to have another lightning round right now. Real quick, though, this one is like blink. You will miss it. So here is our lightning round for the first two chapters of A Game (laughs) of Thrones. In the prologue, in the north, the men of the Night's Watch track a threat, the free folk, but instead encounter the others along the way, the first sighting in 8,000 years, they think. Bran won. Lord Eddard Stark means to teach his sons what justice means by executing a deserter of the oh Night's Watch. The party finds direwolves in the snow as they return to Winterfell. Chloe's it's like, really why was aggressive. this so dramatic? Yeah, you started out real heavy. The second half was real light. Took me on a roller coaster, mm-hmm. but uh, that roller coaster, that roller coaster has delivered me to Catelyn One. Fifteen years have gone by in Winterfell, but Catelyn Stark still feels like a fish out of water, especially when she must navigate the stone walls surrounding it and surrounding her lord husband's heart as well. Dark wings, dark words land in Winterfell, however, and into the godswood Lady Stark must enter. Catelyn won. This is, of course, a chapter that is laden with lots of lore, world-building, and information. We learn tons about Robert's Rebellion, a bit about the Riverlands, the Eyrie, the Aerons, the Lannisters, the Targaryens, and of course, even the beginning of a mystery. A lot of characters' connections are explained, a lot of their relationships to each other are explained, and a lot of just basic storytelling goes on. Yeah, and we're going to go through this, and honestly, it's impressive, and again... A lot of this is because this is like the earliest chapter we've done in the whole entire series. And before this, fun fact, it was in fact our very first episode ever, Eddard 1, which was which is the fifth chapter in this book, whereas mm. Cats is the third. Yeah, and it shows, right? These are some quick chapters. They are just quick enough to get you into it, to get ready to digest it. Because you read this chapter and you go, okay, what's next? What's the next one? Mm-hmm. I love it. All right. <clears throat> Catelyn had never liked this godswood. She had been born a Tully at River Run, far to the south, on the Red Fork of the Trident. The godswood there was a garden, bright and airy, where tall redwoods spread dappled shadows across tinkling streams. Birds sang from hidden nests, and the air was spicy with the scent of flowers. The gods of Winterfell kept a different sort of wood. It was a dark, primal place. Three acres of old forest untouched for 10,000 years as the gloomy castle rose around it. It smelled of moist earth and decay. No redwoods grew here. This was a wood of stubborn sentinel trees armored in gray-green needles of mighty oaks, of ironwoods as old as the realm itself. Here, thick black trunks crowded close together while twisted branches wove a dense canopy overhead and misshapen root wrestled beneath the soil. This was a place of deep silence and brooding shadows, and the gods who lived here had no names. Hmm. What an opening. And it's a strong opening sentence in this chapter. It does a lot of lifting, a lot of work in terms of the characterization right from the start. The prologue starts with the dialogue, right? The, that very first prologue, uh, the dialogue about the time and the place of where a lot of this is occurring. Brand's chapters continue with uh, setting the scenery and the world. And, you know, all of these kind of set up uh, some of Ned's character. But 
What's so interesting about Kat's first chapter is it starts with an opinion. That very first sentence is an opinion that she never liked this godswood. In terms of the world building and lore, George is also doing, again, a lot of impressive heavy lifting, simultaneously both fleshing out Kat's character, while also at the same time establishing the cultural differences within Westeros. He's already shown us a bit of the North through both the prologue and Bran's chapters, and here, through that contrast, is giving us what the Southern cultures are like. And in some ways, Kat's chapter operates, I, I would say, a little bit similarly to Ari's Oakhart's one single chapter uh, <laughs> by giving us that sort of outsider's perspective on the North. And through that allows us to really flesh out the details and again, build out the South. And George is doing this structure, I think, intentionally, right? He opens the books up, not just with the prologue, but with Bran, a child who has less experience with the world, and that allows the audience to sort of come in uh, from this perspective of knowing less, the sort of innocence that allows him to set the stage for things. And then with Kat, right, who, as an outsider, is sort of observing things, recognizing them, and comparing them. It's, it's, it's really smart. But unlike Ari's Oakheart, even though Kat is still unnerved by many of the things in the North and thinks of the Northerners as quite strange to her compared to the culture that she grew up in, as we're going to see throughout this chapter, there are actually very many ways that she might be more of a believer in some of these old powers that exist in the North than her own husband is. Yeah, that's a really great point. I think that George sets this very well, right? This is very mm -hmm. dressed well as far as time. Uh, for those of you that have seen The Bad Show, in The Bad Show, this takes place middle of day. Pretty much they come home from the execution. Everything's still bright out. And she's like, honey, I'm making dinner. That's not what happens, but you know what I mean. I don't uh, know if Kat knows how to cook. <laughs> I hope. I, I wonder if it's just like that Bridgerton scene where they're like, I can heat up the milk. And then they like can't heat up the milk because they're idiots. But... I digress. The show did it in the broad daylight, right? This scene happened in broad daylight, but in the book, it's actually nighttime. It's dark. The water is reflecting black. Uh, it's spooky. It's a little haunted. It's very creepy. It doesn't feel middle of the day. So it's something to think about. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. She knew that Lord Eddard, her husband, would be in the godswood. That's where he went whenever he must take a man's life. Kat herself had been anointed with the seven oils, named in the rainbow of light that fills a sept, particularly river runs. Her father and grandfather and his father had all kept the gods of the seven. Each was named, each had faces. At worship, a septon with a censer led. The smell of incense in the air, voices in song, a seven spiked crystal alive with light. The Tullys also kept a godswood, because all the great houses did, but it was just for walking, reading, or sunbathing. The sept is where all the worship happened. Ned had also built a small sept for her in Winterfell when they married, where she could sing to the seven faces of the gods, but the blood of the first men flowed still in the stark veins. This is a really significant thing, right? That Ned, as disjointed as their marriage can be sometimes, Ned built her a sept. And it also shows a line, a line that we're going to talk about later, of course, with Ashara Dane, for example, in her presence in Catalan's life and kind of some of the inferences that Catalan makes from what she hears of gossip. Uh, but there's a strong division. There's a line being put down by Ned with that sept. We're going to discuss a lot of the ways throughout Catalan's POV 
Kat and Ned's relationship was successful, right? They learned to love and function as a unit together in some successful ways and some ways that were not very successful and definitely failed. I'm probably pretty hard on Ned, I think, personally. I think if I don't remember really how I was when we first covered Ned, but I was really sad. You know, it was a sad time back then, but I think I am hard on him sometimes, though. I do think that he uh, he let his trauma be the walls built around his family, right? In bad ways, you know, I've been playing a lot of The Sims too, and if you remove a door and you build walls around people and you don't let them leave, they die. Okay, they wither up and die. That's in The Sims too. So I'm just applying theory to the books. Anyways, so Catalan one, in this entire chapter, it's pretty clear she is an outsider in his sacred special place. Which, ironically, if you place this next to one of John's dreams of the crypts of Winterfell, they read pretty similarly, right? It's not so different. She's isolated. She's alone. But when she first arrives to this place, to Winterfell, Ned wanted to give her that sanctuary. Part of it is probably his hope to keep her out, right, of his own sanctuary, both literally and figuratively speaking, keep her out of his vulnerabilities as well. I think the duality of her sept and his godswood is something symbolic, that both of them are from these two worlds, these two religions, with different wiring, living these separate lives in the same home, uh, but they're not even on the same planet. The Winterfell godswood, later in the books, it's destroyed, right? Like right now in Catalan 1, it's there, it's standing, but as we get on, we learn it gets destroyed in the second Winterfell. Back in Theon, we hear about it. It's the Sept Beyond had never been rebuilt. Only a seven-sided foundation remained where it had stood. Interesting. Yep. I don't know if that means and anything. That's a metaphor, I would say, right? Like, Yeah. That's her broken sanctuary, though. Also, that's Catalan's broken sanctuary. That's her faith broken. Yeah. There in Winterfell, in her home. And it's understandable, right, for her faith to be broken. I kind of read Ned building the sanctuary... For her, as him trying to do his best to make his new wife feel more comfortable um, up here. And I think that's part of what led to the successes that they did have in their marriage, right? That they were willing to try mm-hmm. to... Compromise. Not just compromise, but understand one another and be- and reach out to one another. There's obviously that one spot, which is John, where he draws the line entirely. But in many ways, they try to reach across and understand one another. And in some ways, I think that shows one of the great successes of not just their marriage, but the politics of it uh, as the North and the South coming together. I I think that it was a sanctuary. He gave her absolutely. I just also think it's multifaceted, just like the seven gods. It's not just a here's your happy sanctuary, honey. It's also I'm giving you your sept because... Also, I brought home this bastard child that I refuse to tell you the truth about, and this is the only way I can try to give you something of your life that I stole from you, lol. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That he didn't want to steal it. A lot of no, people he didn't stole want it. to. A lot of people stole it from Cad, and we'll, we'll explore that as we uh, and from Ned. get yeah. to Hoster. A lot of things were stolen from them. They They both do suffer that trauma, and we'll talk about that. Ned's gods, as you said, though, are the old gods. They're nameless and faceless. They shared these gods with the long-gone children of the forest, with an ancient weirwood that's at the center of the grove. And I don't know that it means anything, but it might, because faceless men do come up in this book. But those words, nameless and faceless, together here, right, referring to the old gods, like, 
it feels like very interesting language. Though I will say, arguably, as a as a complete aside, are they that faceless? Like the whole point is that the trees have faces on them. Just saying, <laughs> Some big well, rainforest cafe shit. It is interesting because this chapter does suggest that they are changeable, possibly, right? The tree leans over a small, cool, black pool of water. Ned calls the tree the heart tree. Its bark is white as bone, leaves red, like a thousand blood-stained hands, and the face carved into it is long and melancholy, with tears of dried sap in its eyes. So interesting that the face of the tree is long and melancholy, which is kind of like a stark look, right? Uh, That's Ned's face. Ned's got the long, sad face. The tree has stark features, so this is where it's lived. It's lived within Winterfell for all of these many, many thousands of years. So two thoughts to that. Could the tree over time morph its face to match the stark look? Question mark? Follow-up thought. It makes me consider, uh, I mean, all of it. Like, the trees remind you of Bran, right? Knowing what we know, this is a reread podcast, and we know Bran can connect to the weirwood.net. But all of the time she's thinking these eyes are watching her, and she's standing here, and later on, Bran watches memories through the tree. So maybe, and I don't know if it's that literal, right? Like, I think it's more figurative. I don't think the trees, like, copy someone's face like a sci-fi stick your face in the tree and all of a sudden your face appears on the other side of the tree kind of thing. But, I don't know. Reminds me of Bran watching her. Bran's face, maybe the tree forms to the viewer. Who knows? Who knows? I think you're onto something and I don't think it's out of the cards, out of the wild cards, for (laughs) George to do that and have the trees adapt to the features of those around him because it reminds me a little of and this is top of mind for me because people have been talking about it. And, and one of our friends, I don't know if he wants me to tell folks yet that he's uh, putting out an analysis of Sand Kings, but it reminds me of the short story Sand Kings that George wrote in which mm-hmm. the main character is very cruel to the Sand King pets that he has and, and acts like a cruel god and, and plays god with them. And eventually, as the Sand Kings grow, he starts to notice that they kind of look like they have his face. So this is something that George is, in fact, I think, a little bit interested in. Wow. So what if Bran is watching this memory and Bran time travel is real, bruh? I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. Uh, but but the it, adaptation, it could be. right? They could have carved the tree to either look like themselves or over the years with the sacrifices, the growing and the Or one of the, the many brands of yeah. Winterfell. I mean, hmm. I don't think what you're saying is, again, out of the cards. I'm like, is this just quarantine brain? Is this one year of being locked in a house and I'm just theorizing wildly about tree faces? Or is it real? Theorizing wild cardsly about tree faces? Yes. The tree was older than Winterfell itself. If stories were true, the tree watched Brandon the Builder set the first stone of Winterfell. The children of the forest were said to have carved the faces centuries ago when Weirwood stood across the land. In the south, Catelyn thinks most of the weirwoods have been cut or burnt, but for the Isle of Faces, where the green men kept their silent watch. The north was much different than the south. Each castle had a godswood, each godswood a heart tree, each tree a face. Catelyn finds Ned under the weirwood on a moss-covered stone, cleaning the greatsword ice in the black waters. The eyes of the weirwood follow her as she comes. She calls his name softly, and he speaks to her, distant, formal, and asks where the children are. He always asked her this. 
totally want this to just be like a modern family aside that she just like looks at the camera and she's like he always asks me that Uh, but this is this is the first dialogue said to Catalan in the story right where are the children Uh, I think that's interesting considering her role in not just Westeros's eye but also in Ned's eye as well we see this come back for Catalan in the chapter later as well with regards to where the children are but on the other side of it, this is what they have the most in common, right? Like, I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation with someone, but if you have animals in common or children in common, there's always the common denominator you can fall back on with the silence. For me, that's my cats usually, but. <laughs> okay. Yes. You're, you're, they are in some ways also your children. Yep. Yes. Yes. They're yes. the only kids I'll ever have, Eliana. Oh my God. <laughs> Where are my dragons? Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, they are they are Targaryens, you know, your cats. Oh, fuck. And you know, you're talking about the role that people see Catelyn as, but it is also, of course, in many ways, the role that Catelyn sees for herself. It's what she's mm-hmm. grown herself into this role of the mother, because Westerosi society expected it of her, and she was glad to oblige. Yeah, it's what she was groomed for. Yeah. The children were arguing in the kitchen, though, about names for the direwolf pups, she says, and as it was, then she spreads her cloak on the floor beside the pool, sitting on it, her back to the weirwood. She ignores the tree eyes, watching her, and tells them that Arya is in love with the wolves and Sansa is charmed, but Rickon isn't sure, maybe a little bit afraid, and Ned thinks aloud that three-year-old Rickon must learn to face his fears soon, because he's gonna grow up soon and winter's coming. Hmm. The tree eyes are watching her here, and before she spreads her cloak on the floor, she sits with her back to the trees, right? So she doesn't have to feel Mm -hmm. the eyes as much or see them or stare at them. And it's interesting because we just were told about the weirwood coloring in the last chapter when it comes to ghost, to John's wolf, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm sure when she saw those wolves and when Ned asked her how the wolves and children are doing, I'm sure she's thinking of that wolf right now and the animosity she feels toward John when she feels the weirwoods watching her with those stark faces. Mm, yes, especially since John is the not just the coloring, right? Has the stark face. Probably looks maybe like the tree, as you were describing. Mm-hmm. More northern than most of her kids. Mm-hmm. And she tried so hard. <laughs> Poor cat. It was never going to happen, girl. The seed uh, is strong. Well, yeah, it, it, it was... And you know that this line about Rickon, right, it, it's called out in this thread on Reddit from a few months ago that I thought was really funny and someone else uh, did too. They they pointed out one of the funniest lines in the book. And for them, coming back to John, it's John like going like, John felt 15 years old again. John, 16 years old. Oh, you're older. So not not that far off. He's, he's real angsty. But it is a... Kind of bizarre when you think of Ned and Kat being like, oh yeah, Rickon's almost four. He's got to like step shit, shit up. It's time to grow up. But again, you know, we spoke long ago about Sansa's chapters and reiterated this with Quentin and Arianne and Theon that many of these characters, right, they are just children or, or very, very young. And how George characterizes the responsibilities and expectations of children are in some ways somewhat ahistorical, but also in some ways very exaggerated, and they're meant to be, right? That we're placing these these mm-hmm. superhuman expectations on these children. But it also, again, doesn't matter what societal expectations of children are, because literally, 
human psychology develops at a certain pace, regardless. This expectation from Ned and Kat, though, it's just so outlandish until I think it's contextualized, and I love and gonna, I'm going to call out again this comment from Reddit user ARS8Birds, uh, which we did once upon a time discuss on that other podcast I do, Meester Occasionally, <laughs> is what it might be called now. But to read aloud this quote, I always want to insert myself into the book and yell at Ned for that. I try to remind myself that in one fell swoop, his father and brother, the lord and heir died, putting a lot of unexpected responsibility on him. And it's the same with Kat. Her mom died when she was seven-ish. Maybe. Unsure again. And suddenly, she was the Lady of Riveron. I think that's one of the reasons why she wanted Arya to be more ladylike, although the primary reason is just regular, like, that's what she thought girls should do. And... Both Kat and Ned want their kids to be more prepared than they were. That makes a totally, like, big amount of sense. It's a really great practical way to look at it because that is how it is, right? Like, they expect them to be ready to go face everything that they couldn't face properly. Yeah, I absolutely. Both of them have trauma from the war. And we have this quote about the house words. Catelyn agreed. The words gave her a chill, as they always did. The stark words. Every noble house had its words. Family mottos, touchstones, prayers of sorts. They boasted of honor and glory. Promised loyalty and truth. Swore faith and courage. All but the Starks. Winter is coming, said the stark words. I love that because it's our first really, I don't know, our, our heads up about house words, right? Like, these are house words and... House Stark has some badass, scary ones. And also, like, most house words are bullshit, is basically what she's saying. Which is true. (laughs) Ned says the deserter died well, running oiled leather up and down the sword. He says she would have been proud of Bran. Catelyn says she's always proud of Bran, and I just want to say that I, too, am always proud of Bran as well. I, too. Aw, it is sweet. We've talked before about the sword being the extension of the person, right? And swords also having a little bit of a a phallic imagery in some situations when you think back to the old Jamie and Brienne. Ned looks at his sword exactly in the same way he looks at Catelyn, right? Romantically speaking, like he's tenderly holding his sword. He's embracing it almost like a lover, as she describes. But moreover, he's doing his duty to keep it clean and polished for when he uses it in battle, right? For execution. Uh Ice is an extension of his duty to his name, right? To the Stark name, to all he's forsaken for the Stark name, to the life he could have led, and everything the Stark name has cost him, which is, you know, Starks, coincidentally. Uh, Death, you know, all that good stuff. So while Catelyn sits here watching it, it's interesting because it's probably the same methodical duty he does with her in the bed and what we'll see in her next chapter. Yeah, I think after a while it did become a little less methodical. But I mean, he came. I think he pulled her hair after a while. That's what the last chapter is about. Um, Whoa! Take that out. <laughs> That's why she's like, Ned loved my hair, and Ned loved to pull my hair. Stop! Um, <laughs> Get off things. this podcast! <laughs> I'm ruining things. You're a ruiner uh, of things. But yes, uh, absolutely. That That is very much uh, the basis of their marriage, right? All of that, and... While Catelyn herself has no love of words, she couldn't deny the beauty of ice forged in Valyria before the doom came to the freehold. 
forged with spells and hammers. It was passed down from when the Starks were the kings in the north. And that deserter, whom we all remember, Garrod, he's half mad, allegedly, and also interestingly, was the fourth deserter of the year. And Ned could see that Garrod had a deep fear within him. His brother, Benjen, had written that the strength of the Night's Watch was below a thousand, not just from desertions, also, they're just losing men on ranging. Spooky. Ned and Catelyn both think it could only be the wildlings, and he says that it will grow worse, he may have to someday ride north to deal with this king beyond the ball for good and for all. And that makes Cat shudder, and dread fills her face. He tells her that, you know what? Nance Raider is nothing to fear, but she's much more afraid of the dark things lurking beyond the wall. This has a lot of traces of that 93 pitch letter, right? Abandoned by the Night's Watch, Catelyn and her children will find their only hope of safety lies even further north, beyond the wall, where they fall into the hands of Mance Raider, the king beyond the wall, and get a dreadful glimpse of the inhuman others as they attack the wildling encampment. Bran's magic, Arya's sword needle, and the savagery of their direwolves help them survive, but their mother Catelyn will die at the hands of the others. Definitely feel some of those traces there, right? With the Mance Raider is, uh, is causing trouble. Yes. I also love that Cat was always going to be a zombie, right? Like, even here, she was definitely going to be reanimated north of the wall as a white. Uh, so whether by fire or by ice, Catelyn was always going to come back to life. Yeah, that is, I think, really interesting that it was just always planned for her. So I think that it also speaks to, maybe we'll talk about this later, but Chloe, you have a theory about a re reuniting. And I think that this proximity between some of those characters here in that death speaks to that theory of yours. Yeah, actually, now that you say that, I realized it like out loud. As you just said that, I was like, oh, yeah, so Arya probably would have killed her north of the wall and put her down as a white to save them. Yeah, or like she appears. Yes, absolutely. I think the proximity there speaks to, um, yeah, your theories about the concept of mercy and that, yeah, reuniting. <laughs> yeah, of what could be in store for their reunion, for sure. Reunion, that's the word. There we go. I got you. Well, you better, it's your theory. Um, Kat glances behind at the waiting and watching Heart Tree. Ned is gentle with her and says she listens to too many of Old Nan's stories. The others are dead, as are the children of the forest, and they have been for 8,000 years now. Maester Lewin will tell her that they never even lived at all. No one has seen them. No one living. She reminds him the same could be said of direwolves until this morning. Got him. <sighs> we literally know all this. Like, you guys are so stupid. We learned all this two chapters ago. We are so far ahead of you. Get with it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, as far as the first chapter goes, this is a great contrast for Catalan. Her first chapter tells us everything we just read from the prologue is a lie, right? Like she and Ned are discussing this and Ned says, no, no, no. That first chapter you, the reader, read is a lie, even though we, the reader, were shown it. So we know the prologue is objectively true. The others are back. They probably never really left fully, maybe? Question. We don't know. We don't actually know. Maybe that's it's what magic the next that woke them. Yeah, that's... Yeah, we'll, we'll get there, guys. Allegedly. But, allegedly. Uh, but these characters right now with this discussion, Kat is kind of supernaturally inclined as we're discussing, and she's sitting here like, something weird is going on out there, Eddie. But Ned is so like, no, 
No, there's no others. There's no children. You're being silly. You're listening to old man's stories. And it turns out he's wrong. There are. And we've already been shown the objective truth. So I really like that he's taking these characters who are supposed to be our moral compass, right? Like these are our protagonist parents. This is our mom and dad that we cherish that are out here like being so good, having cute vanilla e-sex, minus the Ned loves my hair pulling comment Eliana made. Uh, they're very sweet, you know, the mom and dad. And you want to believe them, but you're sitting here already and going... Oh, you guys are objectively wrong. Yes. Uh, well, one of them is objectively wrong, right? Cat, cat's, cat's got some thoughts. She's like, I don't know. I don't know, Ned. And anything's possible, Ned. She's got that Miss Clavel, something is not right <laughs> vibe going on. She's right, but Ned doesn't know that. He gives her a rueful smile, stating that he should know better than to argue with a Tully. True. And puts his sword away. He knows she doesn't like the godswood, which means that she must have something important to say, and she takes his hand before telling him the grievous news. John Aaron, the man who basically raised Ned, was dead. And obviously we are doing a lot of building around Ned and Kat's relationship here because that helps, you know, land a lot of those emotional beats in the story later on. And in the years they were together, right, some sort of love did bloom between them, and a lot of it was, of course, a love grown from grief and the trauma of the war that they all survived. And John Aaron is, of course, a huge part of that, especially for Ned, as we'll see in the following exposition. But that Kat is the one who tells him and that she does not soften the blow, I think, tells us a few things about her and their relationship. She isn't afraid to cut straight to business, is one of them, and she respects and loves Ned enough not to try to soften the blow, but also that they are close enough for her to be the one to break this news as well, right? I think that we see a couple of relationships and marriages in Westeros where that would not be the dynamic, um, or she would not be privy to that information at all. But it also shows us that she has the courage to be the one to deliver that bad news to Ned. And in some ways, I think it's her own version of being the one to swing the sword. Oh, that's great. And in a way that makes her the shield and Ned the sword in the relationship. Mm. Yes, her courtesy. Oh, yeah, and he's putting away his sword at the moment. Mm-hmm. Well, and he has a place to sheath his... Anyways, John Whoa! Aaron had been a second father to Ned and King Robert Baratheon and raised his moon and falcon banners in revolt when Ares demanded their heads. And he had been a brother to them, kind of as well, right? Standing next to Ned as they wed two sisters... Liza and Catelyn Tully. He asks if the news is certain, and she says it was the king's seal in Robert's hand. Lord Aaron was taken quickly. Even Maester Pycelle was unable to help him more than giving him milk of the poppy. He didn't linger in pain, at least. Ned worries about Liza, Catelyn's sister, and John Aaron's son, Sweet Robin. Catelyn says they're well and that they've returned to the Eyrie. She wishes they would go to River Run instead. The Eyrie is lonely and high and not Liza's place. Her husband's memory would haunt each of the stones. This is a rather romantic view compared to what Catelyn gets when she finally gets to her sister's house, right? Like that big journey and she's like, oh, I'm eating some of the words I said in my first chapter about this. Uh, but it's at the same time, it is true in a, a few ways, right? Like if Liza hadn't been so isolated and uh, so easily manipulated 
Had people been checking in on her? Had her support system been bigger? Maybe she wouldn't have let Littlefinger in so close. Maybe he wouldn't have been able to manipulate her so well. We just don't know and make her murder her husband and all that jazz. I already said let Littlefinger in and I was like, oh no. <laughs> Keep him out. If he's cold, if you're cold, he's cold. Let him out. Close, close the legs. <laughs> Don't let him in. Um, you know how like people call on cars that have dogs in them in the summer, which you should always do when it's too hot, like in a heat wave during you know like global climate change, as it's experiencing around the world. But it's like that, except leave him in there. Like, put yeah, I was like, I don't car. know. Leave little finger in the car. I, I don't understand. <laughs> I was like, is she telling leave you to him save in. him? Because no. <laughs> no, no. And the reason why, obviously, we feel that way is because part of it is uh, what you're saying, right? This isolation of Liza. It's not just like accidental. Part of it is very much how little finger operates, right? As mm -hmm. an abuser, he's intentionally trying to isolate Liza. Though, of course, we don't know that yet. I mean, we do because it's reread. And mm -hmm. it is interesting, though, for Kat to say that Liza would feel isolated and strange at the Eerie as opposed to feeling at home, because I think it's an insight, right? Surrounded by how Kat, throughout the entire beginning part of this chapter, has been telling us that she still feels strange and not completely at home at Winterfell. Yeah, she's projecting her own feelings onto kind of these memories with her sister of her sister's relationship. I mean, yes, her sister is suffering a little bit of grief. Uh, not from what she is telling us she's suffering grief yeah. from. She is suffering from a lot of trauma and grief. But when we see Liza in the Eerie, she's, I wouldn't say happy, but she's assertive and she's fulfilled and having something to rule over and people to rule over and no one to really say no to because she's not like mm -hmm. outlandish, outlandish, right? She's just a little bit of crazy. She's just like slightly a little, oh, okay, lady. You're a little batty, but all right. No one's going to say no to her. She's in her domain. That battiness is that went blood in her, isn't it? Oh, batty. Yeah, that bitch is batty. Love her, though. I mean, I, I'm like, you know me. I'm a sympathizer. <laughs> Liza apologist. Yeah. She's real. interesting. We'll obviously get into her. Yes. Later on. Uh, I mean, it's literally in Kat's chapters. I do think that there are many reasons, though. I, I Looking at this and the way that she reacts to what's going on in Liza's life, Maybe gives us some insight into some of the reasons why Kat doesn't return to Winterfell after Ned's death. Yeah, I mean, there are many reasons, right? A lot of them do make sense to me in terms of just like logistics and other things. And of course, plot, you know, do it for the plot. But I do wonder if there's an element of this in her subconscious, right? Where Because where she does end up afterwards is back at River Run. But turns out, even though she goes back home, River Run ends up being in many ways just as isolating as her family is dying around her, or so she thinks. And it's changed from her girlhood home, as also her father is dying right in front of her, too. And also saying crazy things to her that she doesn't understand from traumatizing his daughter and not being a very good father. But we'll get, again, get into that. And to an extent, we also see the grief that losing a father has for both Ned and Kat. It's through Kat's chapters, but of course, I mean, Ned's chapters explore it for himself as well when it comes to John Aaron. Yeah, that's a great point. They are connected through their grief. And I mean, if anything, if I know anything, it's that we get old and everyone around us dies and then we die, right? Like, that's mm -hmm. just the natural progression of things. Absolutely. And they are getting to that middle of the road age where they're going to start seeing people they know die. Uh, sometimes it might be illusions and they might just think someone's dead and they aren't actually dead. 
like all your children. And that's a, that's a sucker, right? Like that's a hell of a, a pill to swallow. But yeah, it's hard. It's that time of life. Like my parents just keep saying all the time, they're just like, man, all my friends just keep dying. And I'm like, man. Yeah. Life but sucks. I will, I will say some of them, like, was it really that time for John Aaron or was it poison? <laughs> right. That's true. I mean, that man could have lived forever. My God. Wow. I mean, thank God someone took. Anyways, uh, <laughs> Ned mentions their uncle, Brynden, was still the knight of the gate at the Vale. Catelyn thinks, well, Uncle Brynden will do what he can to comfort them, but. And she trails off, and Ned's like, you should go to her. Take the kids. Fill her halls with laughter. And she's like, I Aww. hope that I could, but bad news, home skillet. This letter comes with more strings attached. King Robert Baratheon rides for Winterfell. It takes him a moment to comprehend, but a smile breaks across Ned's face. I kind of want to backtrack and just rest on the idea of, like, it would have been nice for Kat to visit Liza with the children. That actually would have been really sweet. I mean, maybe it wouldn't have had the effect that she thought because, again, Liza killed her husband, but... Right. If he had died of natural causes, like they're saying, yeah, then yeah. This would have been so sweet. Maybe it would have been doubly exciting for Liza. She gets rid of her husband and her sister. Well, actually, she hates her sister. Never mind. Um, yeah. In another universe, that was very sweet. <laughs> this would be really cute if it wasn't these characters whatsoever, Eliana. <laughs> if they were different people entirely and this was not A Song of Ice and Fire. Well, this is A Song of Ice and Fire and George wrote it and... So some of how this plays out with the news that Cat breaks, I don't know that George actually intended this in terms of how it how he structures it and the reveal of the information and that setup. Um, part of it is he structures it this way because he has to move the plot forward and it makes sense for the information to be delivered in that order because you have to have something that comes next, right? And it you've all read the story, you understand how it flows. But ignoring that meta part about it, what happens within the text is that Kat is someone who is cunning enough to have delivered the bad news first, and then given the good news second, knowing that news of Ned's foster brother visiting would bring him joy. Yes, that's perfect how she cushions it. Very smart. Mm-hmm. And and she wants to protect him from it, right? Like, it's not great news. You don't want to tell somebody that they're, you know, their closest Thing to a parent left died uh yeah. but only you know after all their family was lost in a war and she wishes she could share in this joy but she's filled with dread because she just thinks about the talk going around that the dire wolf that they found all the little baby dire wolves around mm-hmm. was found dead in the snow a broken antler in its throat she forced herself to smile at this man she loved this man who put no faith in signs Yes. And I think this speaks to what you were saying earlier about Kat being right. Like, again, (laughs) besides Catelyn believing that perhaps something sinister does stir on the other side of the wall, she is the one who does put faith in these northern omens about the direwolves. She's the one who actually later reinforces a point that Jon first makes in Bran's chapter. Uh, that the direwolves and the Stark children are meant to be together, especially after she witnesses Summer saving Bran. Like, she might not have supernatural powers yet, but she does know how to read the signs. Yeah, she has the gut feeling, that's for sure. 
She suggests to Ned that they send word to his brother on the wall, and Ned agrees and says he'll have Lewin send his quickest bird. Mm. Does Lewin just know which of his ravens is the quickest? Anyway, um, the invitation of Benjen is another sort of exposition that reinforces that familial-esque bond between Robert, Ned, and John Aaron, because with Robert's visit, they're inviting his brother, and that shows us that Robert is very much like his family. Mm-hmm. It's a family reunion. It is. Ned pulls Kat to her feet and begins to think aloud, asking how many years it has been. And how could Robert give them such little notice? How? I could never <laughs> see that coming. How? It's Robert Baratheon would never gatecrash anything. He asks Catelyn how many men are in Robert's party, and she thinks, like, at least a hundred knights with the retainers and half as many freeriders, Cersei and the children as well, which would provide them a little extra time to get things together. It's really notable that Catelyn doesn't know how many people are coming, like a hard number, because Robert didn't give her a message saying, 100 knights with retainers, half as many freeriders. No, this is, this is just, the letter was, hey, dad's dead. I'm coming over. See you soon. He you sent know. a text. Yeah, like Cersei's coming with the kids right and the bros. Like there's no, that's it. Like you get that. He probably didn't give him an exact number. So this is Catalan's knowledge of Westeros and the customs of the South and of the crown, right? Like she also is around for some of the politics that play into the crown and worked with her dad to kind of learn those and be groomed to learn those. So Hoster grooming her as the heir, taking her on those diplomatic missions, shows here, and her vigilance in this knowledge is something she as a lady would learn in keeping a house, in estimating numbers and food and drink stores. To understand the Riverlands, too, which is much more densely populated than the North, she would probably be keeping those factors in pretty prominent mind. And you can see the importance of these lessons in how she's imparted them on her point-of-view children, right? As well as Maester Lewin's lessons, like Sansa, who flexes her knowledge of how sigils and knights in the next chapters, and Arya's character, right, learning what she can from the people of the house when she goes to King's Landing, and not only King's Landing, but every future mm-hmm. destination, too. And even Bran, as much as he learns from his father into how to play the Stark of Winterfell, he also learns from his mom a bit of diplomacy in watching and understanding the politics at play. There's also a little bit of something interesting going in, going on here in terms of class and how it gets built out more. Again, a lot of exposition happening in this chapter. We saw it a bit in Bran's chapters and, of course, the opening of the prologue, but it's in how the characters address one another. First of all, when we see Kat and Ned first greet one another, they're intimate enough that they just refer to one another by first name, right? Um, some some folks don't do that in this story. Then they also refer to the king never as his grace. And they don't usually say King Robert. They just call him by his first name, only Robert. And I think that very much shows their closeness and their status as well. Um, and it's the same for Cersei. Interestingly, though, Kat does continue to call John Aaron Lord John or Lord Aaron. Uh, maybe it's a habit from her own childhood because, as we know, John Aaron was significantly older. I think it's a little weird that she calls Brynden Tully at first just Brynden versus Uncle or Uncle Brynden, which I think is both. It's a little bit of George's just exposition being like, this is the name of Catelyn's uncle because we do get him in this book. And, of course, he doesn't really flesh out his really, really... uh intense nuncle philosophies and nomenclature until later on in the books. Something else that I also love about this scene is 
the way that George frames Ned and Kat's relationship, he's trying to do this thing where he's trying to make them and humanize them by creating this relatable sort of loving couple to us in these small moments between them and showing that trust with with the that emotional news, but also in the way that Robert's attendance is delivered. Because I, along with not really getting the number of people, which is a big Robert move, we don't get a concrete time frame at first of when Robert is going to arrive. That's not given in this chapter. Again, a big Robert move. Uh, the dynamic between Ned and Kat does feel like a couple suddenly like having to host another few people for like a surprise dinner party, right? Especially because we don't have that time frame. It feels so urgent as opposed to it actually mm-hmm. being a royal affair. Um, between the way that they gossip about the guests and be like, oh my god, we have to get like the plates and everything ready. That's the mood here. Yeah, and I mean, that is the total trope, right? Like the perfect housewife, for example, who somehow pulls together something at the last second is a really big mm-hmm. comedy trope even. So it, it has it has those feelings. And coming back to what you were saying about kind of the familiarity and the formality of John Aaron for Ned versus Catalan, right? Uh, when they talk about the kids, he specifically says... She speaks about her sister and the kids, and he specifically says, your sister and John's kids. Oh, interesting. Uh, So there's almost even a tone of ownership of that. Like, for him, he looks at them as John's kids, and he looks at John as the familiar person in the relationship. And for her, Liza is her familiar person, and she, like you have said, kind of has projected her emotions onto that relationship. Uh, She wasn't that far off since, you know, Liza poisons him. But she's projected her emotions onto it, so she doesn't take familiarity with John. Absolutely. And maybe it's that familiarity and the projecting. And I also wonder if, like, beyond the implications of things, like, does... I mean, Ned's just closer to John, as you were saying. And Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's an extent of which Ned thinks of Robert Aaron as John's child, because he's also thinking of, like, the whole inheritance thing. And mm-hmm. what's going to be on that kid's shoulders, mm-hmm. uh, which does become a subject of discussion. But we talked about that long, long ago, <laughs> two years ago, 118 episodes ago, actually more than that. Oh, my God. The Queen's brothers are also going to be in attendance. Catalan tells Ned this and he grimaces because he does not really love the Queen's family. There's little love between them. The Lannisters had come late to Robert's cause when the victory was already guaranteed. Ned had never forgiven them. But he says, so be it, he'll deal with an infestation of lions. Where the king goes, the realm follows, she said. It will be good to see the children. The youngest was still sucking at the Lannister woman's teeth the last time I saw him. He must be, what, five by now? Prince Tommen is seven, she told him. The same age as Bran. Please, Ned, guard your tongue. The Lannister woman is our queen, and her pride is said to grow with every passing year. Ned squeezed her hand. There must be a feast, of course, with singers, and Robert will want to hunt. I shall send Jory south with an honor guard to meet them on the King's Road and escort them back. Gods, how are we going to feed them all? On his way already, you said. Damn the man. Damn his royal hide. Info dump, info dump, info dump! (laughs) Yeah, there's so much in that, right? Like, I think that last passage says so much about uh, the relationships between the Lannisters and the Starks. 
And of course, how Ned sees these other children and he kind of, you know, sees them as infants in his mind and they've continued growing. But yet he does the opposite to his kids and rushes them to grow up, which I thought was very interesting, especially when you're looking at Tommen versus Bran, right? Both little kings, so to speak, are little princes right now, prince in the north and prince in the south. Mm -hmm. I love that line, though, where the king goes, the realm follows, especially as Rob will soon pick up his pilgrimage as we get toward the end of the story, right, in the Game of Thrones, where the king goes, the realm follows, and most Mm. of the north goes off and dies for Rob, for Ned. That's really interesting because that is Catelyn's last chapter right in this book. So her story starts off with news of a king and ends with news of a king in this book. Interesting. Yeah. Kat's a foundational character, I think, for setting up, again, a lot of the plot in the story. I mean, even if you look at it from an objective level alone, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, Catelyn is the best POV because you get to go the most places, right? Like the Mm. most deeply through some of these places you don't ever get to see. You get perspective from all sorts of people, kings, from different POV characters, right, that you see along the way. I just think like she has these very interesting intersections Arya might be the other close one on, like, the best for lore, world building, etc. They just, like, you learn so much about yeah. the Song of Ice and Fire world through her lens, though. Absolutely. And some of it is, like you said, uh, the age that the royal family is, and also also some of that characterization of Cersei, right? Even before we meet her, Kat's telling us this. And part of it is not just that exposition of, mm-hmm. of those characters. It also tells us a little bit about Catelyn and her own politicking, right? Uh, you pointed mm-hmm. out earlier Sansa knowing the sigils and Arya knowing how to, how to interact with different kinds of people. This is Catelyn having stayed abreast of the news in the kingdom because that is important to their house uh, to know the age, right? And to mm-hmm. display those courtesies when people like the royal family comes. Yeah, I mean, my parents, my mom is very much the administrative of the two, you know, like my dad probably love him to pieces. But if he had to pay bills on his own, I don't know. I don't know what he'd do. It would he would really struggle. You know, my mom is the person that keeps the shit straight. So that's how I kind of put that in my mind, you know, like Catalan knows the eggshells she has to step on to get shit done in the household. She knows where she needs to push. She knows where she needs to pull back on a little bit and stop. This chapter showed that, especially with that letter and how she delivered the news, especially. Uh-huh. It's kind of sad that Jory gets mentioned here because Jory is actually going to go down, greet the Lannister and Baratheon party, including the Queen's brothers, with an honor guard. And later he goes down to King's Landing and dies at the Lannister's hands in the streets. Damn. In his blood. So Damn. Yep. Yeah. But he went down with an honor guard to get him. That is that is sad and fuck. Talk about guest right, eh? Mm-hmm. Or guest wrongs is what is happening here. Two guest wrongs don't make a guest right. <laughs> they really do well, uh not according not according to I was gonna say Wyman Manderley, but technically he did not break guest right, so Maybe he was that's very a careful true. to find the loopholes. Very yes, careful. he was. Wyman well, Manderley for lawyer. <laughs> Want that man to be my lawyer? Um, you know, we did have Clint voice him from the Learned Hands podcast. Mm, so it's perfect. That one time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 
Otherwise, I love that this feast is described as Sansa bait, right? You have the singers, right down to all the, the majesty coming to Winterfell, that now he's like, ah, we have to bring out all the craziness. But the other thing that stuck out here is Robert will want to hunt, and then the very uh-huh. end, damn the man, damn his royal hide. Because that is, of course, what does Robert in in the end. Well, the cousin with the wine, maybe. But uh, <laughs> other than the wine, the boar, the the hunting of the boar and wanting to go hunting, he ends up getting his own hide tanned by a boar. That is for sure. Absolutely. Ned doesn't know what he's saying here. He doesn't know, quite know that, yes, Robert is damned. They all are. Everyone Everyone in this chapter is damned. <laughs> oh, I mean, everyone's damned, really. Mm, motherless damned. Oh my god. Well, that is, I think, a wrap on Catalan 1, right? An introduction to Catalan Stark, Natoli, and Catalan 1, Game of Thrones. And an introduction to a lot of Westeros, too. And to many more. Yes. There's going to be a lot more Catelyn chapters, so I think that this is a good place to stop for us. And obviously, we're going to get, we're going to dive deep to her chapters much later on. (sighs) Yes, we'll be testing those waters. And if you want to make sure you hear all about those waters being tested, you should be following us on social media. That is Girls Gone Canon on Twitter, C-A-N-O-N. Or if you have thoughts, if you want to send us a several page long email with all of your thoughts about Catelyn Stark, as long as they're correct thoughts, please send us an email to girlsgonecanon at gmail.com, C-A-N-O-N. Again, uh, we would love to hear from you and what you're thinking about. Yes. And of course, if you want to keep up with what we are thinking about and you would like to get information at a better pace than Robert Baratheon sends it in letters, feel free to subscribe to us on any of the platforms that we are on. For example, Podbean, where we host everything, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, um, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts? Nope, sorry, Google Play? Uh, fuck, I messed this all up. Acast, Stitcher, Overcast. I think I think I started hitting a couple of them there. There's more. <laughs> <laughs> I think you got some, Eliana. You hit a few. And just look it up on Google if you can't find us. We'll be there. And if all that fails, make sure you run over to Patreon on patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. You can also listen to our episodes there. There's actually a private RSS feed that you can hook up and you get all your episodes through that, including special Patreon episodes, $5 a month and up. That tier, the stranger tier, gets access to a special episode prepared by us for you to listen to. Last month, it was on Serpentine from His Dark Materials' Novellas by Philip Pullman. And this month, it will be on The Sworn Sword with our friend Joe Buckley, which we are so excited about. And hey, we also have a private Discord server for patrons in the Thunder tier, $10 tier and above, where we chat about everything and anything under the sun, including our pets, Food, lots of food, all the time talking about food, video games, anime sometimes, movies, Soviet cinema, you name it, we're chatting <laughs> about it. Cinema. Soviet cinema. It's, it's a Discord joke. If you're there, you'll know. If you know, you know, okay? I don't uh, even know if everyone else knows why I did that. I died. Like I know, and that's all that matters to me. That's all you care about. 
And <gasps> once a month, we also have brunch slash happy hour where we play some Jackbox games or do a potluck presentation style PowerPoint party. Wow, say that 10 times fast. And uh, just have a blast. We have fun on Discord. Sometimes we stream games, whatever. Just hanging out, enjoying company. So come on over to patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. We'd be happy to have you. Yeah, and I've been glad to see, you know, as you said, we are probably going to do Jackbox games for this month's Brunch and Happy Hour. We had a suggestion, because Chloe put together a poll as to what activity people wanted to do this month, of perhaps we play Jackbox games and cry. It is, once again, March. (laughs) March sadness. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Um... Yeah, March sadness not, for not Pisces great. season. Oh and also, uh, you know, it's been a year since you know, a lot of things have happened in our world. But anyway, so yes, as you said, there are channels for streaming and people have started streaming themselves playing games. We have some people streaming themselves playing The Sims that are not you, Chloe, and uh-huh. other people streaming themselves playing um, Mountain Blade of the with the Game of Thrones mods and a couple of the other, other games. Um... So yeah, that's been pretty cool. Yeah, keep it up. We love that. I love to watch that. So we'd be glad to have you and glad to watch you stream your games. Yes. Well, as always, I have been one of your hosts, Catalan Tully number one. Oh my god. And I have been another one of your hosts, version two, Lady Stoneheart. Oh my god. Delete! Delete! <laughs> Control Alt Delete! Alt F4! Oh my god, this is a mess! Is that not what you were going for? <laughs> we have to go back. <laughs> Thanks okay. for listening. We'll talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.